0: I'm Sahil Desai. I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And this is Hidden Pomona.
1: Hidden Pomona is a podcast about the forgotten, obscure, and overlooked parts of Pomona College's history. We'll be releasing episodes every other Friday until the end of April. Stick with us as we uncover the hidden history of our school.
2: A group of faculty were in the lecture hall on the second floor, and we were talking about a variety of things, and there was a big explosion. And I, and well, we all ran out of the room, I happened to be the first one out. And I found Mary Ann Keatley on the floor. Um, she was so uh, injured that I didn't even recognize her for, for a short period of time. Um, part of her hand was blown off. Her face was very uh, covered in, in blood. And uh, I took my necktie off, actually, and used it as a tourniquet. And uh, somebody else called the... Uh, physician who was at uh, the student uh, facility, medical facility, and that was Tony Wood. And she came after a bit and then they had an ambulance came and took her away. Um, It was clear that she wasn't going to die, but she was in shock. No
0: question about it. That was Frank Tugwell, a former professor of government at Pomona College.
1: On February 25th, 1969, Marianne Keatley was nearing the end of the day as Secretary of the Government Department of Pomona College when she walked past the faculty mailboxes just to the right of the main entrance to Carnegie Hall. Marianne saw a shoebox wrapped in brown paper inside one of the mailboxes, and when she reached for it, it exploded, spewing bits and pieces of shrapnel in all directions.
0: Marianne Keatley, who had married a CMC student just five months earlier, was badly injured. She was rushed to the hospital, and while her condition quickly stabilized, she did lose two fingers in part of her eyesight. The bomb exploded during a time of protest at Pomona in the Five Cs. There were two separate movements at the time, one to protest the Vietnam War, the other to implement ethnic studies departments at the Five Cs. A bomb being set off with no explanation in the middle of this already tumultuous time made the school very paranoid, said retired Pomona professor Leo Flynn, who taught at Carnegie at the time.
3: There was such a huge amount of paranoia that the, the dean of students at the time, a guy named Roger Bell, who was called by the students and other faculty, Dean Dong Roger Bell, gathered up all the black students and took them to the dean's house that doesn't exist anymore. So he gathered all the black students there. Uh, a couple of them were my my advisees and friends. So anyway, he was, he was simply you know, afraid there'd be some massive attack on black students, which, as far as I know, nothing, nothing like that ever happened. Uh,
1: but it just was indicative of the uh, 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 the paranoia that was running around. The bomb was placed in government professor Lee McDonald's mailbox, which led some to question whether the bomber was targeting him directly. Claire McDonald, Lee's wife and a Pomona alum from 1947, remembers how scary of a time it was for them.
4: Lee called me and said there was bombing going on at his office, and I was to be careful and to stay in the house, and the kids were to stay in the house. So we were immediately scared, and I called up my daughter, and she and her husband joined us, and we had a very bad night. Every car that went by, we wondered if they were going to throw a bomb at us.
1: Professor MacDonald was known on campus for being an opponent of the Vietnam War and an ally for the student protesters. However, Professor MacDonald was told by law enforcement, and believes to this day, that it was completely random that the bomb was placed in his mailbox. He told us that the bomb wasn't addressed to him in particular.
4: The mail, all the all the faculty mailboxes were uh, adjacent to the stair, staircase that goes from the lobby of Carnegie down to the first floor. And the mail is usually delivered in the morning. Uh, our secretary uh, for the what was then the government department just happened to be coming uh, up the stairs in the well, this I guess it was around 4 o'clock. I'm not exactly sure of the hour. And she saw this shoebox wrapped in brown paper in my mailbox. And uh, it was uh, a good question why it was in my mailbox. I think the ultimate con- conclusion of everybody was that if a person was running up the stairs or in a hurry up the stairs, uh, this was the box on the bottom level of all the boxes and right in the middle. And that would have been the easiest place to quickly place the bomb.
0: About 40 seconds before the bombing in Carnegie, an identical bomb exploded in a women's bathroom in the basement of Scripps College's Balch Auditorium. While no one was injured, the windows were blown out, and the building needed a lot of repairs.
4: So I, I also remember that it was Tom Brokaw, who is a pretty well-known NBC reporter, for the rest of his life, was was a uh, local reporter for the NBC station in Los Angeles, and he came out and interviewed me. We stood in the quad.
0: It's worth noting that Pomona and Scripps weren't the only colleges that this happened to. In the late 60s and early 70s, college campuses across the nation were bombed. Just in California, San Francisco State University, and Southwest College were bombed within a couple of weeks of the Claremont bombing. In 1970, a bomb at the University of Wisconsin-Madison killed a physics professor and injured three others. The Department of Commerce and the Portland, Oregon City Hall were also bombed. While some remain unsolved, most of the bombings that were prosecuted were tied to statements against the war in Vietnam.
1: At Pomona College and across the nation, protests erupted over the Vietnam War and racial justice. It was a tense and tumultuous time that disrupted the status quo in idyllic Claremont. Black students presented a list of demands during the 1968-69 school year, which quickly became a contentious topic on campus. Among the demands were instituting a Black Studies department at the Claremont Colleges, and increasing the number of black students at Pomona to 10%. There were fewer Latino students, and they got less coverage in the press at the time, but Latino students also lobbied to have a department of their own. The Black Student Union became an easy target in the wake of the bombing, since some people on campus accused its members of playing a role in the incident. Sympathetic faculty and administrators temporarily housed black students who feared retaliation on campus.
4: We heard a muffled boom in the background. And it just shocked everybody. And then soon thereafter, I think the campus police came and said that there had been a bombing and somebody had been injured. And then we'd heard that the woman who had been injured was the wife of a CMC football player, and he was obviously upset, and his friends were upset, and they were going to come to deal with the people who they thought were responsible for the bombing, at which point all black students on the Claremont campuses, college campuses, were evacuated from the campuses. We were all told to leave. And we went, and there weren't that many of us who were around at the time, but we went to stay at the house of a man named Bert Hammond, who was one of the college advisors. He was one of the few African-Americans on the faculty and staff at the time. And then his street was blocked off by Claremont police
1: and uh, L.A. County sheriffs. And we stayed there for, I like, think, a night or two until things calmed down. That was John Doggett who's now a professor at the University of Texas Business School.
5: I think one of the immediate responses of the communities of color, particularly the black and brown communities, was that it was the action of an agent provocateur. And um, because there were protests that were going on around the establishment of a black study center and a Chicano study center, and those had been going on for some time. And... Uh, they had been completely nonviolent, um, very assertive, but not violent. And so there was a sense that this was an effort to destabilize them. And there was quite a bit of question about the safety of um, students of color as a result of the bombing.
0: Eileen Wilson-Oyelerin, who is now the president of Kalamazoo College in Michigan, was on the campus during that time. Back then, she served as the secretary of the 5C Black Student Union.
5: My two roommates, who were um, white, and I went to stay at the home of the then Dean of Women, Jean Walton. Uh, She called us and said um, that she would feel better if we weren't um, by ourselves in the house. So we were there, and I think we were there two days.
0: A couple of days after the incident, Ronald Reagan, then the governor of California, made a statement about the Claremont bombings that added to the tension on campus. Reagan said that the bombings were, quote, a pretty good symbol for the faculty and students who have kept silent during periods of campus unrest. Reagan seemed to imply that the Black Student Union had orchestrated the two bombings, which was a claim that wasn't based in any sort of evidence. Even Reagan's press secretary said that he, quote, didn't know what the governor meant by that. Three Pomona students who were leaders in the Black Student Union held a press conference at the Ambassador Hotel in downtown L.A. to repudiate Governor Reagan's claims. The students, Eileen Wilson, now Eileen Wilson-Oyalarin, John Payton, and Danny Wilkes, asked for an apology from Reagan, saying that they had received threatening phone calls after the governor's comments.
5: We spoke to the press both about what was going on at the college and about the fact that uh, there was no involvement of the BSO uh, in uh, that activity.
0: Danny Wilkes, class of 1971, and then the president of the Black Student Union, said in the press conference that, quote, those opposed to us have made a link between the bombings and the BSU. There is no link, and there is no proof that the BSU is involved.
1: John Payton graduated from Pomona in 1973, and later became the president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. In 2003, he argued Gratz versus Bollinger, a major case about affirmative action, in front of the Supreme Court. After he passed away in 2012, President Obama released a statement calling Payden, quote, a true champion of equality who had helped protect civil rights in the classroom and at the ballot box. Many of the students and faculty, though certainly not all, were sympathetic to the protests at the time.
5: Bye. 68, 69, um, right at the beginning of the academic year, students had already decided that they wanted to try to see what could be done. Um, In many ways, the the requests are unfortunately very similar to the requests that we have now. Request for faculty, request for more students of color on campus, uh, a request for a black study center um, and for a curriculum that was, it, that included both the Chicano and the um, African-American experience. So we began by um, holding meetings on the various campuses because, you know, each, the, the BSO was a five-campus organization, but each group of students had to deal with their own campuses in, in some ways. So... There were a series of presentations to, to, throughout the five campuses. There were um, rallies. Uh, Sumner Hall was then the um, administration building. And uh, there was a sit-in in um, Sumner Hall to try to get the attention of the president and the dean. Uh, in terms of knowing that this was a fairly serious issue. There was, um, over time, a very strong coalition that was built with students, primarily the students who were anti-war students, because that was also going on at the same time. So you had the, the movement around um, Chicano and African-American studies, and then you had the anti-war movement, and there were some people who were in both, Um, and so there was a lot of coalition building work going on.
0: We caught up with President Wilson Oyelaran, who now serves as a Pomona trustee when she was on campus for a meeting. She said that it took quite a bit of convincing to get the college presidents to listen to students of color.
5: We entered negotiations with the five presidents of the undergraduate college, because the focus really was on the undergraduate colleges. And those negotiations took probably a week and a half of like four-hour meetings a night. We had already designed something that we thought would work, and so it was about modifying that. And then um, the president signed off on it. The Chicano Studies, Association signed off on it, and the the BSO signed off on it, Um, but it was very hard fought.
0: As it happened, the bomb went off during a pivotal point in the talks between the BSU and the Pomona administration. They were just finalizing a resolution declaring support for ethnic studies departments.
1: Some were afraid that the bombing would get in the way of dialogue on campus between students of color and the college administration. The BSU was a nonviolent organization, and their leadership was concerned that people might blame them for the bombing. However, with the BSU quickly disavowing the attacks, the talks between the BSU and the administration quickly resumed, even with the fear that students, especially black students, were living with at the time.
0: A memo announcing the establishment of a black studies program in a Mexican-American studies program was sent out on February 26th, the day after the bombing of Carnegie. A week later, the BSU and the presidents of the colleges released a joint statement announcing a committee that promised, quote, the fullest possible self-determination for the Black Studies Center.
1: Although the college presidents had declared support for ethnic studies, it took longer to convince the Board of Trustees, much to student activists' dismay. Cartoons from the student newspapers at the time depict the college presidents as being caught between the interests of the student protesters and the trustees, but the presidents ended up siding with the students. The Mexican American Studies Center and the Black Studies Center which now go by Chicano-Latino Studies and Africano Studies, were instituted the next academic year after a long and protracted battle. This fall will mark the 47th anniversary of their founding. That same year, African American Studies programs were created at UC Berkeley and Stanford, among many other schools. Medical funds for Marianne Keatley were collected through ads in a student newspaper, and they ended up collecting over $2,000 for her. Her recovery was reported on by the school newspapers, and while not everyone kept in close touch with her, the professors in the government department, which later became the politics department, gave each other periodic updates whenever they heard how she was doing. No
0: one ever took responsibility for the bombing, although there was a $5,000 reward offered to anyone who gave information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Claremont bomber. Of course, rumors flew around about who did it. Some suspected a San Francisco State University student who later pled guilty to another bombing up at that school. There were rumors about the student having some Claremont connection, like a girlfriend who went to Scripps or Pitzer. There was a near-identical bombing at Los Angeles Southwest College. The bomb at Southwest College was so similar to the one in Claremont that Sergeant Walker of the LA Police Department told the LA Times that, quote, there has to be a connection. With no apparent motive or suspect, no one ever knew who put the bomb in Lee McDonald's mailbox. In an interview with former Claremont Mayor Enid Hart Douglas in 1990, Mark Curtis, who was the president of Scripps at the time of the bombing, said that, quote, I believe myself, and so did the district attorney, that the person who was blown up at San Francisco State was the person who planted the bombs down here. We have some reason to believe that he was a problem. Someone believes that they saw him down here. But absent the lack of DNA evidence or reliable eyewitness testimony, no one could ever say for sure who bombed Carnegie.
1: Considering the extent of her injuries, Marianne Ann Keatley recovered relatively quickly. She left the Pomona Valley Hospital on March 14th, and five months later, she left Claremont with her husband for her hometown of Boulder, Colorado. She got a PhD in speech-language pathology and founded the Keatley Clinic, which helps people recover from traumatic brain injuries. We couldn't reach Marianne Keatley for this story, but Leo Flynn remembers catching up with her decades after the fact.
3: Then years later, I was out at the University of Colorado for a conference, and I called them up. And so, Marianne, Bob, and I went out to, to lunch. And uh, her the 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 shrapnel the tattoo, tattooing, which was just really horrible. I mean, she's a really pretty. She could have. I mean, I'm sure she was under 22 when this all happened. And uh, 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 so, there's bad straddle tattooing all in her face. But by the 1990s, when I saw it, all that had come out, uh, and she looked really good. I'm mean, still blind in an eye, uh, but apparently that hasn't been a problem. And uh, she ha- they had two children, and she went, uh, as he- after he got out of law school, she then went to the University of Colorado and got a PhD in speech therapy. And another one of my colleagues, Frank Tugwell, a guy who put the tourniquets on, uh, has communicated with her and said that she has
1: uh, uh, become a fairly prominent person in her, in her field. Hundreds of students walk past the exact spot of the bombing every day on their way to class. But still, there's no plaque commemorating the event or reminding students about what happened there 47 years ago. Unless you talk to a professor who knew about it or read about it on the Pomona College timeline, You might not even know that it happened. Classes soon resumed in Carnegie, although the college had to board up the hole in the wall with plywood until the building was renovated that summer. The faculty mailboxes have since been moved and after another renovation in the 90s, it's even harder to tell what happened in 1969. But even still, the damaged section of the wall wasn't repaired exactly to what it once was. And you can still hear the hollowed parts of the wall if you knock on it in just the right place.
0: This episode was reported, written, edited, and produced by Sahil Desai and Kevin Tidmarsh. Kevin produced the theme music.
1: is recorded in the studios of KSPC.
0: Special thanks to Eileen Wilson-Oyalarin, Frank Tugwell, Leo Flynn, Lee McDonald, Claire McDonald, and John Doggett for taking the time to speak to us.
1: Thanks to Special Collections at Honald Mudd Library, for access to the Claremont Collegian and E. Wilson Lyons Papers, and Denison Library for access to Mark Curtis's oral history.
0: And thanks to Susan McWilliams for the editorial guidance.
1: I'm Kevin Tidmarsh. And I'm Sahil Desai. And this is Hidden Pomona.